Hello and welcome. Uh, if you were at church on Sunday, you'll have noticed that the PA kit unfortunately malfunctioned and it meant that we weren't able to do a live stream. And I felt that because we were beginning a new series on the gifts of the Spirit, and that was the first session on that new series, I thought it would be good to just recap. So I'm going to record again the sermon I preached on Sunday uh, for you to watch back. So if you'd like to join me, we're going to open up the Word of God to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word today, we thank you that this is not just the word of any man or woman, but this is your word. This is the infallible, inerrant, all-powerful word of God. Though it was written by human hand, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was breathed out by you, and it's profitable today for our upbuilding and our strengthening as we follow you in faith. We pray as we look today at the subject of baptism in the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would send your spirit upon us afresh, that you would fill us today, Lord God, and, Lord God, that you would pour out your truth upon us, and, Lord God, that you might receive a reward from our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So today we are we are looking at the subject of baptism in the spirit. We are looking today at Pentecost. And to help us understand what Pentecost means, I think we need to go back to thinking covenantally. If you remember a few weeks back, we looked at the subject of God's covenant with man throughout the ages. And we saw that God is a God of covenant. And in fact, he makes seven covenants with man throughout the Bible. And so although what we're looking at at Pentecost is the very beginnings of the Christian church, of the New Covenant church, God's church actually goes way further back than that. God's church actually begins with Adam and Eve right back in the Garden of Eden. And right throughout the ages, God has always had a covenant people on the earth. 
And so in each of those covenants, the covenant with, with Adam, the covenants with, with Noah, with Moses, with, with Abraham, all of these covenants that, that God made, there's always been a particular manifestation of God's presence in each of those covenants, a development, if you will, of God's presence in each covenant. And so before we jump into looking at Pentecost, I think it's helpful to go right back and to look at exactly what God's presence with his covenant people actually looked like in each of the ages. Because I think we've got to understand that Pentecost, it's connected. It's connected to all of these covenants that have gone before. It's not some random, unexpected alien event, but it's actually the fulfillment of God's promises that he made in the Old Testament. And so when we go right back to the beginning of time, what we see is God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the very first manifestation of God's presence with his people, was that he literally walked with them. We read in Genesis 3 that, you know, Adam and Eve heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. Now, of course, at that point, they'd sinned. They'd already sinned. They'd broken the covenant. So they were scared of him. They were hiding from him. But what it tells us, the inference is that before that, they'd heard God walk in the garden many times. And we might imagine they walked with him. There was no animosity. There were no sacrifices needed for them to approach him. But they had fellowship with God. They had an intimacy with him. The next time that we see a manifestation of God's presence really clearly in the Bible is at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Now, of course, this is after the fall. And note how different this manifestation of God's presence is to the first. In the first, we see mankind walking with God unhindered. We see a friendship. We see an intimacy. We see a a genuine fellowship there. But in this next occurrence of God's presence, his presence was awesome and terrifying. Let's read from Exodus 19, verses 16 to 18. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And continuing in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We see how different that particular manifestation of God's presence was after the fall. Now, of course, the next time we see God's presence show up is in Exodus 40. And again, the manifestation is is different. The tabernacle has been erected. God has given Moses instruction uh, on on Sinai as to the kind of tabernacle that he will dwell in. And now we see 
that God's presence, his manifest presence is with his people, with his covenant people. And it is resting upon the top of the tabernacle, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Exodus 40, 38 says, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so this manifestation of, of God's presence is as a guide to them through the wilderness and as a comfort to them. The manifest presence of God was with Israel, was with his covenant people. It wasn't ever given to the nations around. It was there as a sign of God's covenant with the people of Israel. It was a sign that he was with them. And that was a real comfort to them as they went through the wilderness. And here we can see a picture, can't we? Building the wilderness as the world that we inhabit today, a place of danger, a place of trial. And it is a place, no less, where the Christian enjoys the manifest presence of God upon them in the same way to guide them and to lead them on their journey through the wilderness and also as a sign and a seal of God's covenant with them. And it's a sign to the nations around them that God is with this people. And I love what Moses says in Exodus 33, 15 and 16. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? God's presence with his covenant people is what distinguishes them from all the nations around them. And Moses knew this. Moses was jealous for the presence of God. He didn't want to look like the nations around them. He wanted God's presence and it was his desire that he should not leave any place unless the Lord go with him. Oh, church, if we could have that same zeal to always need and desire God's presence to be with us and not to take a step in any direction unless we could be certain that God's presence and glory will go with us. And we read, obviously, in the Old Testament of a time when the nation of Israel forgot this and the sons of Eli began to sin before God. And they were not desirous of the presence of God. They were desirous of the things of the world. And of course, the glory of God departed that house. And the baby Ichabod was born as a prophetic sign of that. And may we not be like that church in these days. The next time that we see God showing up in his manifest presence with his people is at the temple. Now, of course, this is after the people of Israel have settled in the Holy Land, they've settled in the place of promise and God made a promise to dwell in the temple. And of course, we read about this in First Kings 8. When Solomon has completed the work of building the temple, we read in verse 10 and 11, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of Yahweh and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled his temple. God dwelt in the temple. It was where he promised he would be. It was where he stayed. And each year, the high priest alone was allowed to enter 
into the very Holy of Holies in the center there of the temple. And just once a year on the Day of Atonement, he was allowed to enter in to make an offering for the sins of the people. Now, even then, if he wasn't properly cleansed, if he hadn't provided an offering for his own sins, he himself was in serious danger. God could strike him dead. The presence of God was not something to be trifled with. And I often think in this day and age, we can forget that as Christians. We've become overly familiar, maybe, with this idea of being filled with the presence of God. And we we forget how awesome the presence of God actually is. That before Christ came and offered that perfect sacrifice that cleanses from sin perfectly, before that, going into the presence of God was an extremely dangerous thing to do. So much so that the high priest would have bells sewn into his garments so that if people heard the bells stop jingling and he had a rope tied around his waist as well, they heard, you know, if they knew that the bells had stopped jingling, that was often a sign that something had gone terribly wrong and the priest could be killed. He could have been killed before the presence of God and they would drag him out. So the presence of God was not something to be trifled with or taken lightly. Now, in each of these various administrations of God's presence, God's presence was always with his covenant people. It was the promise that belonged to them, not to the whole world. You couldn't just rock up to the temple in Jerusalem as a Gentile. You couldn't rock up to the, the temple as a Gentile. You couldn't go in as a, a Jew if you were as a man uncircumcised. You weren't allowed to enter. The circumcision, of course, was the sign and the seal of the covenant with God. And if you didn't have that sign and seal, you couldn't go into the temple. And so God's presence has always been a visible sign of his covenant with his people. And throughout all of these covenants in the Bible, God is growing and building his presence with his people. Each covenant is kind of like a development, one on top of the other. They're not entirely different. They build on top of one another and they they get greater and greater. And what the new covenant is, is the fulfillment of all of these old covenants. Jesus is, of course, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And so when God promises in Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And again, he speaks through Joel in Joel 2.28, and, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, meaning Jew and Gentile, on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And what we're seeing here is an expansion of the promise of God. We're, we're led at the end of the Old Testament to expect something to expect something greater, something broader than what we've seen before in the Mosaic Covenant. And of course, what we've seen in the New Covenant is that the promises of God are thrown open. They're thrown open to all nations, to all Gentiles. We read in Ephesians 2, you know, you were once aliens, aliens from the promises of God without hope in the world, but the blood of Christ has brought you near. And so what we're seeing is an expansion of God's work in the earth. And so what we can also expect is an expansion of God's manifest presence 
with his covenant people. That's what we should be expecting. And that's what we're seeing at Pentecost is the fulfillment of that promise. Christ ascended and he and the Father together send the Holy Spirit upon the new church, upon the new covenant church on the day of Pentecost. And at that moment, they're in the room and they hear the sound of a rushing wind. They're filled with the spirit. We see the tongues of fire on top of their heads. They began to speak in tongues and, and praise God in, in many languages, so much so that people heard them in their own language, praising God. And so that's the moment at which the spirit fills the church. That's the new covenant manifestation of the presence of God upon his people, greater than anything we've seen in the Old Testament, as we should expect. And Habakkuk 2.14 says, yeah, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the, the globe. And so it's what we should expect to see is a, is a greater manifestation of God's presence with his covenant people. Now, what I want to deal with today is just looking at what that means, because there's a number of times in the New Testament we read about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's seven times in the New Testament we read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course, what Jesus says is that that happens at Pentecost. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, many today look at Pentecost in different ways. Christians now, 2,000 years later, can look at Pentecost and, and maybe see it as something that ought to be a blueprint, if you will, for today, that we should want Pentecost every day, that there should be a new Pentecost for a new time that we live in. But I think what we need to do is frame Pentecost in the sense that you can't redo it. You, you can't have a new Pentecost because Pentecost was the initial moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And the Holy Spirit's never left. He's never gone anywhere ever since. So we don't need a fresh Pentecost because God already fulfilled that promise. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be hungry for extra infillings of the Spirit. We know that the apostles, even after Pentecost in Acts 4, Peter was filled again with the Spirit. He was filled again to in, or, in order to fulfill a duty in his ministry. He was filled in order to have a fresh boldness in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And so we are to be continually filled, as the book of Ephesians tells us, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's something we're to expect and look for. But we can't, if you're understanding me, we can't have a new Pentecost just in the same way that you can't have a new baptism. If you're baptized as a believer, you don't need to be baptized every day. It's happened once. You've entered into the covenant. You don't need it to happen every day. And Pentecost is the same. God did it. He fulfilled that promise. His spirit has never left his church ever since. And I think another thing to say is that it's become quite common for many believers to look at baptism in the Holy Spirit as being something that is only accessed by a few. So many will think in terms of you're baptized in the spirit if you've had a particular encounter with God. Um, if you speak in tongues, you're baptized in the spirit. But if you don't speak in tongues or if you haven't had this second encounter after conversion, you're not baptized in the spirit. But what I want to say is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is what makes you part of the church. 
It's what makes you part of the body of Christ. And unless you're baptised in the Holy Spirit, you can't be a Christian. That's proved by 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Let's go to there right now and let's have a look. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now that verse is one of around, I think it's seven passages that speak particularly about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The other six are either Jesus saying that that's what he'll do or John the Baptist saying that's what Jesus will do. But this one is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And the way it's written in the original language is very similar to the other six passages that speak about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you could render it for by one spirit or with one spirit. We were all baptised into one body. The language would allow for that. And so this verse is talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit. And what's really interesting is that it connects baptism with the Holy Spirit with membership in God's covenant family, membership of the church. So really what's being said is that if you're not baptised in the Spirit, you're not a member of the body of Christ. Let me just read a quote for you. This is from Wayne Grudem. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is a phrase that the New Testament authors use to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. It happened at Pentecost for the disciples, but it happened at conversion for the Corinthians and for us. God's manifest presence throughout all the ages has always been with his covenant people. And to say that God's baptism of the Holy Spirit belongs only to a select few who either speak in tongues or have had a secondary encounter with the Spirit, I think is to diminish the promises of God. That would narrow down the baptism of the Spirit to just a select few uh, in the last 2,000 years of church history. And in fact, according to Paul, it would mean that only a few have truly been part of the body of Christ, which I don't think is consistent with what the Bible teaches. I think what we're being taught here is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the covenant people of God is for the church, that if you are believing in the Lord Jesus, if you have repented of your sins, if you're born again, you've got a new heart that hungers for the things of God, that is waging war against indwelling sin, then you are baptised in the Holy Spirit. You have received a baptism in the Holy Spirit and his spirit is with you powerfully sometimes we feel it don't we sometimes we actually get a physical sense of God's presence with us but other times we don't maybe it's more distant but that doesn't negate the fact that as a Christian as a born-again believer there's no way you could be a Christian unless you had been baptized in the Holy Spirit there's no way that that could be the case now we're going to get into talking about the gifts of the Spirit in the coming weeks and we are going to talk about each of those various gifts and the fact that they are used of God to build up his church and they're given diversely within the body of Christ. But every member of the body of Christ is a baptised in the Holy Spirit believer because they're part of the covenant family of God. 
Now, what I want to say also is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, not just over salvation, but also over the giving of his spirit to the church. And there are certainly times throughout church history when it seems that God has given a greater measure of his Holy Spirit to the church. And he's sovereign over that. There's a story about Jonathan Edwards, who was a minister in America in the 1700s. And Jonathan Edwards presided over a great move of God, a great revival in which large swathes of his town actually came to Christ in one year. Remarkable outpouring of the spirit. And in Jonathan Edwards' writings, what we find is that the year after this great outpouring of God, Jonathan Edwards continues to minister faithfully. He continues to be devoted to God. There's no great sin that takes place in his life, but the revival stops. It stops. And, and Jonathan Edwards is left there thinking, well, nothing changed, but the, the move of God changed. The, people stopped coming in their droves. And it's clear that that is the case. You get ministers in various parts of the world that spend their whole life ministering faithfully, preaching the gospel faithfully, praying, utterly devoted to the work of God, but never see a revival. And then there are other places where it seems that sin reigns supreme and there's such brokenness, even in the visible church, but God pours out his spirit liberally. And so what we want to say is that what we do see is God is sovereign over the outpouring of his spirit. Yes, he uses by means our prayer. He uses our preaching, but those are not the ultimate source of revival or of the outpouring of the spirit. God in his sovereignty is. But every believer, every believer is by virtue of the fact they're a Christian baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what does baptism in the Holy Spirit mean for you as a believer? What does it mean for you? Well, I think there's a number of things it means. Firstly, baptism in the Holy Spirit means power. It means power. It means power to live the Christian life. If you imagine you've got a wonderful new Lamborghini, if you've got a beautiful new Lamborghini and you're taken out to see it by the showman, you're allowed to sit in the front, you're given the key to the ignition and you're told, off you go, go and have a test drive. You turn the key in the ignition, but the engine just clicks over and it doesn't ignite. It doesn't start. You say, why hasn't it started? What's going on? He says, oh, you see, the problem is there's no fuel in the car. There's no fuel in the car. That Lamborghini, beautiful as it may be, is rendered useless because there is no fuel to burn. The engine cannot run, the car cannot drive, and it cannot perform the action of driving. And in the same way, a Christian who is not filled or a believer or somebody who professes faith, you can see it's impossible for them to fulfill their duties as a Christian unless there is fuel in the car. Unless the Holy Spirit is filling a Christian, there's no way they're going to have the power to live for Christ, to run from sin, to wage war against the world, against the sin and against the devil. There's no way they're going to be able to actually do the job of being Christian unless they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what happens when we're baptised in the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. If you remember that picture that we talked about at the time when the people of Israel are in the wilderness and the Spirit of God rested upon the tabernacle as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, he led them through the wilderness. Now, Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and will 
be a witness to the truth. He will lead us into all truth. And if you're a Christian, you are baptised in the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing internally is his job is to lead you into all truth, lead you into all the promises of God, lead you deep into scripture and being able to apply that to your life. First John tells us that you know we have the anointing and the anointing teaches us the things of God. You have an inner guide. You also have as the Israelites had in the wilderness, a sign and a seal of God's covenant with you. When the Holy Spirit is with you, it's a sign to the nations around you that you're chosen, you're selected by God, you're his, you belong to him. And that's a comfort for us as well. Thirdly, being baptised in the Spirit means that God has chosen to display his glory in your life. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, sorry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has chosen to send his spirit upon you in order to show his glory to the world. Just as Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain. So in a greater way, in a more profound way, God has chosen to show his glory through his church by baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit. And that is his way of preaching to the world. Preaching to the world the good news of salvation is by his anointing, his Holy Spirit upon his church. And finally, I want to answer a question because often many people will come and they'll say, well, this may be what the Bible teaches. It may teach that as a Christian, I am spirit filled or I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. But why don't I feel it? Shouldn't I be able to feel the presence of God? Shouldn't there be some kind of a real powerful sense of the spirit at work in me? And firstly, I want to say that there are times and seasons when we really do feel the Holy Spirit. Many of us have had encounters post conversion, just like the apostles did when we were filled afresh, filled again with the Holy Spirit, and we felt God's presence. And that does happen. But there are also times when we're not as aware of God's presence upon our lives. And we can be led to think, and I think sometimes the enemy wants to lean into this, we, we are led to think that because we don't feel the presence of God, that that means that he's abandoned us or that he's not any longer with us, or maybe we've done something that's caused him to depart, or maybe he just doesn't love us anymore. He's done with us. And I, I want to say this. I want to say this. Often our senses, our feelings, our emotions, often they experience whatever it is that our mind is consistently dwelling upon. If we think about it in the negative, if, if I am consistently worried if i'm in a constant state of worry and anxiety about what might happen uh, thinking about something negative that could happen to me you know oh what what happens if i walk out the house today and i'm hit by a bus what happens if i walk out of the house today and i'm struck by lightning and i spend my whole life just carrying in a corner of a room worrying about what might happen how many of you understand that my feelings, my emotions, 
and even my physical body would begin to align with my mindset because we are connected. God has knitted us together in such a way that whatever we consistently dwell upon and think about is actually what we experience. And you often find people that live under high stress for a long period of time, their physical bodies are impacted as a result of living in that constant state of hypervigilance. And the same, I think, is true in the opposite, in the positive, or in terms of our spiritual life. When we choose to dwell upon the reality that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are baptized in the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is upon us, for the glory of God, that he is upon us to lead us into all truth, that he is upon us and has given us power to live the Christian life. When we choose, I think, to dwell on that consistently, then we're actually teaching our emotions. We're teaching our bodies, our minds to experience that which we're thinking about. And I'm not saying that's necessarily what's being taught here in the scriptures, but I do think that's true. There was a, a monk called Brother Lawrence who wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Really interesting book. But what Brother Lawrence did was he consistently dwelt on these biblical truths about the manifest presence of God being in him, Christ in him through the Holy Spirit. That became his meditation. It was what he thought about every day as he went about his duties. Now, often his duties were very mundane. He was a pot washer in a monastery. And as he's washing pots, going about his business, he's just dwelling constantly on the truth of God's presence upon him. And sure enough, when people would get around Brother Lawrence, when they would be with him, hang out with him, have a conversation with him, those people too would actually encounter the Spirit of God. He became known as somebody who walked in close relationship with the Holy Spirit. And it was a real joy to him. It was a a real pleasure in his life to experience the sense of God being with him. So I would say that perhaps there's something that we can do, which is just simply to meditate on the truth of the fact that you are spirit filled and to expect to know God and expect in a sense to be united with him in the same way that Adam and Eve walked with God without fear. Now we are encouraged because of Christ's perfect offering for our sins, we can now come boldly before his presence. We don't need to fear like the Israelites did in the wilderness when they saw all the rumblings and flashes of lightning on the mountaintop. All of the sin that we've committed is now dealt with, not by the blood of lambs, not by the blood of goats, not by, by any kind of offering or ritual that we could perform, but is dealt with completely and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he, our perfect offering for sin, our Passover lamb, because he has been offered to God on our behalf, we can now come just like Adam and Eve did at the very first before the presence of God. We need not fear. There is nothing now that we can do to add to Christ's work. It's been fully completed and we can come before him boldly. <clears throat> and greater than that, God has now chosen to put his presence inside of us. We don't have to go to geographical location to find him. We don't have to do pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go find God. He dwells now with us, with his covenant people. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for the truth that you have put your Holy Spirit within us as a seal of our salvation, that you have baptized not just us individually, but your whole body on the earth. Your church has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that that outpouring has never stopped ever since the day of Pentecost. You have always had your presence upon your church and you have your presence in us today by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us become more aware of that reality. You would help us, God, to focus our minds on the truth and not on what our feelings tell us. And we thank you, Lord God, that this is only possible by grace. This is only possible because you sent Jesus Christ on our behalf to take our sins upon himself so that we might receive what he deserves because he took what we deserve. We thank you, Lord God, that today we have a reason to be thankful. We have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to be hopeful because you are a God of grace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray as we go from this place that you, your goodness, your mercy would follow us all of our days. Amen. We say the grace to finish. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.